It's time to check in with Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer with Acumen Law, also the organizer of a very cool suit drive that is taking place. And Kyla Lee joins us on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No problem. I think it's a great initiative. And if we can get the word out to people, uh, all the better. So what exactly are, are you doing with this suit drive? So I'm working with the Allard Law School at UBC to put together a suit drive, which will be happening on March 23rd. Um, and we're collecting donations of new or gently used women's suits. Um, although we'll take suits for anybody, we're focusing on women's suits to try to correct the sort of imbalance that exists in our society between the availability and the cost of a men's suit and that for women. And when you're in law school, of course, you have to wear suits to go to networking events, to go to job interviews, to do all of these things that the school and, and the university puts on. So it's a, a huge additional expense and source of stress for female students who don't have the same access to the number of suits at a low cost that men do. It is a huge difference. And I think unless you actually have somebody that you know what a man's suit costs or even dress pants for a man compared to women, it, the, the difference, I think, might surprise people. It's, it's amazing. I mean, there are entire stores uh, dedicated just to selling suits to men um, that have sales where you can get, you know, two suits for $199. If you can find a suit as a woman for less than $199, you basically won the lottery. Um, it's not unusual to pay upwards of $500 for a decent suit as a woman. Which is, is a huge, yeah, again, such a huge difference that, that isn't talked about all that much. Do you remember when being in law school? I mean, has this been something that it can't be just a new thing that's, that's facing women who are law students? No, this isn't new at all. It, it was something that was a big struggle for me in law school. I, uh, you know, I had very limited financial resources. I was, I was working full time while going to school and living off money that I'd saved, you know, from the summer jobs that I'd had um, and trying to make ends meet. And then having this additional stress of having to go out in, you know, my first couple weeks of school and purchase a suit for networking events to try and get a job. And I looked everywhere. I couldn't find one. I ultimately ended up spending um, my time looking in thrift stores because that was the only place that I could find suits that I could afford. And so I ended up wearing these suits that were horribly out of date fashion wise and that kind of smelled <laughs> because they were in thrift stores. Um, but that's all I could afford and all that I had access to. And um, my guess is there would have been many other students in similar situations. Oh, absolutely. It was something that was very common for my peers. And, you know, I would I would try and find suits that were in their sizes while I was out um, because I knew how difficult uh, a time they were having finding suits that fit them and that, you know, that looked different from, you know, just a plain black suit that everybody else has that you stand out and you're memorable. And that's something too, isn't it? That the, the difference between, I think there was an experiment once done where a man wore the same suit for every day of the year to, I forget what the job was, just to see he if... He was a reporter. <laughs> yeah, if anyone noticed. And nobody noticed that it was the exact, not even different variations of the same suit. It was the same suit every single day. And I've had that same experience too in my career where I've, you know, gone out of town with male colleagues for trials and had to pack for a week of court. And, you know, I'll, I'll show up with a big suitcase with, you know, five suits in it. And my male colleague has, you know, a, a small little carry-on bag. And I said, what about your suits? Well, I've just got one suit and five different shirts and five different ties. Nobody will, will notice. 
It's like, well, must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you're asking for kind of gently used or, or um, suits that are still obviously in good condition. So how can people find out how to get those suits to where they need to go? They can contact me. They can send me an email, kyla, kylalee.ca. They can contact us um, through the office, call our office line, um, or they can direct message me on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. We will pick up the suit anywhere in the lower mainland. We have uh, people who are dedicated to driving around and picking up suits over the next couple weeks, and we're accepting donations up until March 22nd. And do you have a goal or a rough idea what a a number that would be uh, your, we would be pleased with that amount? I mean, a hundred would be lovely, <laughs> um, but I mean, we'll take we'll take any. If we have ten, we have ten students hopefully that can match with a suit. If we have five, we have five people hopefully that can match with a suit. As many as we can get. The more we have, obviously, the more people we are able to help, and and the more we're able to try and correct this imbalance. Absolutely. Um, I'm guessing. I, I know in the past there's also been if people wanted to give a gift card or wanted to give a donation to go towards purchasing suits, that was also possible. Is that also possible in this year's drive? Yes, absolutely. If you would like to donate money, we last year we um, we bought eight hundred dollars worth of gift cards um, to uh, Banana Republic, which does sell some lower cost suits. Um, and we're going to be doing the same thing this year. So if you don't have a suit to give, but you want to donate some cash, um, you can contact me and we can either come and get it from you. You can send an e-transfer, um, get it to us, however, and we will uh, put that towards a gift card that we'll give to students. All right. Well, it's a great initiative and it's good to be talking about it on this International Women's Day. Uh, Again, you've given out the information for people to contact you uh, to get the suits to you. And sorry, what is the date again that you'll be taking donations until? Up until March 22nd. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Very, very great program. I hope you get a ton of suits. Thank you, Joe. Well, this is a story that got a ton of attention this past week, so it is definitely worth revisiting on the weekend. It has to do with pets being allowed in rental units, and a Port Moody City councillor is hoping to change things when it comes to the Strata Councils and Residential Tenancy Act. So let's bring in the councillor who is behind this motion. Amy Lubick joins me on the line now. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you brought forward the motion. What exactly did the motion say about people who are renters and their pets? Um, the idea behind the motion was to change the Strata Act and the rental, uh, the RTA, to basically to not allow no pet clauses. Um, you know, pets are pets are family, and we're in a housing crisis. There's I think the SPCA data says that there is around 1,500 to 1,700 animals that are surrendered each year in BC because their families just can't take them with them to um, well to housing that's that's adequate, and you know that's not it's not fair. Um, it's not fair to the animals and it's not fair to their families. Uh, there's so much there's so much research that animals and 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 humans get so attached to each other. Um, and now we're having to, to break up, um, break up the families because of uh, the housing crisis. And from what I understand then at this point, has the motion been passed by council? The motion has been pa- passed by council. So, um, this is a, a motion to the lower mainland local government association. And if it passes there, then it would go on to the union of BC municipalities, which is the kind of 
the body of all of the local governments in BC that petitions the the BC government to to change laws or enact things because we don't have the uh, the authority as a local government to do it uh, specifically in Port Moody. Right. Uh, so as it stands now, if we're looking at, let's say, Stratas, uh, just just looking at Strata Corporation. So from what I understand, the, the fallback, the default uh, rule for Stratas is one cat, one dog and a reasonable number of fish. I forget the exact wording, but strata <laughs> councils can vote, can can take it upon themselves to either increase that number, decrease, or make it a no-pet policy. So would this, would this make it so there would be one set rule or there would be no rules when it comes to animals? You know, I think the devil would be in the details when it comes to um, how all of it would play out. With our, with our motion, you know, it's, Petitioning the, the government to make changes, so we would have to try to, to work with them uh, to be more specific. We really can't get too into the details when it comes to trying to to get these legislations passed. But, you know, I, I think that one of the things that we tried to do is put in, um, not a clause, but a bit of a... a Some words, some wording, anyway, to say that you know if there are if there are allergies, um, particularly thinking about people who have basement suites, or there are like dangerous animals or dangerous situations, the um, destruction, then then there should be recourse for for landlords, but there shouldn't be blanket statements not allowing not allowing pets. Right, uh, because that was my first thought too, and that it's it's very different if we're talking about, say, a rental building where each unit is separate, and whether it's it's pet friendly or not. Where, or if we're talking about somebody who has a basement suite and does have allergies, or maybe has kids with allergies, and doesn't want to rent that suite to somebody with pets. Exactly. Um, you know, everyone's got their own situation, um, so we wanted to make sure that there was some wording to say this is not, you know, there there should be ways that people can have their own situations addressed. But, you know, again, we're in a housing crisis and people are having to basically break up their families, um, which is kind of how close we are to our pets. So, you know, we we need to be thinking about about that. Uh, and I think one of the... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, um, just thinking about one of the letters... You know, you get some angry letters and you get some positive letters and things like this. But um, one of the the letters that I really appreciated was a gentleman who said, um, you know, we kind of have this twin crisis of of housing, lack of housing, and also kind of social isolation and loneliness. And, you know, for some people, their pets are the only thing that they have. So it's important to make sure that there, there are ways for people to to stay with sometimes their only companion. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned, too, that, that you get letters of support and angry letters. My guess is you're also getting letters or response from people who are landlords who are saying, um, look, this is private property. Some people don't like animals. Some people, again, have allergies and that the private owners should be able to say whether or not they want animals living in their units, in their in their property. Um, yeah, um, but then there are some landlords that say that have written that I'm a landlord and I'm supportive. Um, so, you know, there's different views from from everybody. But again, uh, we're we're in a housing crisis, 
So, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to be thinking about. And and when and when you talk about that, are you talking about? So, well, I would imagine if somebody has animals, has pets, and 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 I agree, and I'm a dog lover myself, and I I have dogs. That somebody's in that scenario. Is it when people are changing housing? Because you would think if somebody has pets, they're living in a scenario where they're allowed to do so. Uh, usually, it's in the in the change of housing, um, but there are people who end up you know on the streets because they t- can't take their animals or surrendered. And I think that's, I don't have the details of uh, why, uh, I don't have the details of specifics when it comes to um, people being surrendered or animals being surrendered. But we do know, you know, we have a lot of renovations going on and demo evictions going on when it comes to affordable housing. So I think it's mainly when people have to change housing, but there's a lot of that going on. All right. So you mentioned uh, it will go uh, lower mainland or, or the, the idea is to get this to go to the next UBCM. Uh, is that, do you think that's, is that possible or is that going to happen? I'm, I'm very hopeful. You know, there's, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of positive change that seems to be going on at UBCM um, and LML, the lower mainland local government association. People have some really forward thinking emotions coming forward and so I'm pretty hopeful. Um, you never know, <laughs> but um, but I'm I'm pretty hopeful. And yeah, I think this actually, um, yeah, I think it would be a really good thing. It's also not um, it's it's not something that would be unique to BC. Uh, Ontario has actually done something similar already, so there is precedent. All right. Well, we will uh, watch and see what happens with this. Uh, Councillor Amy Lubick, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We'll move over lawnmowers. There is a new kid in town. Yes, that was the play on words I was intending. Goats, even possibly sheep and cows used to maintain parks. Is it a really far-fetched idea or is it something that could work and be environmentally friendly? Well, let's talk about that and bring in Adrian Carr, who is chair of Metro Vancouver's Climate Action Committee. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, so what exactly is, is being talked about here as far as using goats and possibly other animals when it comes to public spaces? Well, it's, it's about a green alternative to the use of pesticides uh, to, uh, to get at the invasive plants that are actually quite detrimental to our natural ecosystems. And, and so what ty- are we talking about hogweed or what type of plants are we talking about? Yeah, that, Himalayan blackberries, um, up out in Chilliwack, they're very concerned about the Japanese knotweed, uh, scotch broom, English ivy, thistles, morning glory, there's lots of them. <laughs> All right, and so, and I know this is done elsewhere, if you do a quick search, you can see how this has been done in Calgary, there have been studies in Colorado about this, so would it be animals roaming around eating these things, or how would that work? <laughs> no, that, that they could cause even more of a problem if they're just le- left roaming around, especially if they're goats, because goats are voracious eaters and pretty omnivorous, um, although they don't touch uh, so much the native uh, species, which is fantastic. Um, so Jill, they've been used all over the world. I mean, uh, in Europe, in, in uh, Asia, in other places, as you say, Calgary in Canada and, and in the United States, um, it's just fairly new here. Uh, but the idea would be to herd them. I mean, goats, particularly sheep, um, these are herd animals. And so they would be in a contained area, would have to put up a temporary fence 
so they don't get into other areas we may not want them in, and uh, they'd be herded. Hmm. And, and do, you, do you have an idea where in the region, though, if this was to be tested, where it might start? Well, the first phase of this project is to figure that out. Um, it may be in some of our regional parks. In fact, that's, it's probable that that's where we'll start, where there's been some, uh, some of the parks that extend into um, what were farmlands, and uh, therefore there's a lot of um, invasives that have got into those areas. Um, but it's, it's going to be in the Metro Van area. I know that Chilliwack's already done something that's out of Metro Van but, um, region, but they've already done something, so maybe up the valley. Uh, but the first phase is just figuring out who will partner with which parks. Right. And the public will be, know, will be informed. So we'll make sure that it, you know, the word gets out there because one of the ideas is that, um, that if the public's interested, that they can actually go out and see the herds of goats at work. <laughs> which are um if you've not seen goats close up they're cute they're they're fun little animals but you're right they are they are they can be aggressive and uh, they're pretty uh, they've got big appetites um so so what happens at this point then as far as as looking at this or i guess too is it a big problem that right now it's the use of herbicides and it's the use of of in some cases uh, more more chemical type uh, products to deal with these invasive species it will, you're absolutely right. This is about, as I said right off the top, um, an alternative to pesticides. Right now, invasive species are a huge problem. In fact, in BC um, as a whole, it's probably costing farmers an estimated $50 million a year in reduced crop yields and um, reduced quality of the forage that, um, that they need for grazing animals. Um, so it uh, it certainly is um, a, you know a huge problem that way. And uh, what has been used is noxious chemicals to try and stop the invasives. But some of them, like Japanese knotweed, it doesn't even respond well to pesticides. So this is our hope that um, that those um, non-noxious, as you say, very cute animals <laughs> can go in and actually voraciously eat up the uh, invasives that are costing our, our farm and agriculture industry a lot right now. Right, but if we're talking about this uh, in parks, that's very different than farmland. It is, but the point um, is where can Metro Vancouver actually test this out? We don't own farmland per se. Um, so uh, some of our parks do include some areas that have had uh, farming activity in them in the past um, or, you know, that would be suitable for farmland. So it's those kinds of area, areas where we might be able to go and provide a, a test, notwithstanding the fact that there may be some farmers that come forward saying that they would like us to test within within their private land areas. Um, but we have um, not that many alternatives in terms of the land that Metrovan actually owns um, to be the sort of um, pilot program area. Um, so it, it'll be limited. We won't do it you know, in huge, vast areas. This is going to be a controlled experiment um, to see about uh, the effect and, and you know, also study some of the potential unintended consequences. I mean, one of the things uh, that um, has 
some of the biologists worried is uh, that there may be the spread of some of these uh, plants that we don't want, the invasives, uh, via the poop. Mm-hmm. And so um, that'll be one part of the program as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wasn't sure how to even ask that question in a way because they are, <laughs> if they're eating these things and then moving around and uh, exiting uh, them too, is that not, yeah, is that not a concern that they're, they're actually going to be replanting this stuff? <laughs> Yes, that is. Um, I, I shouldn't laugh, actually, because it's a serious issue, and um, and certainly the um, uh, that is one of the elements of the study that is incredibly important. We want to make sure that um, the control, i.e. the goats or the sheep that are eating the invasives, um, are not doing any damage or any extensive damage, and that would be both in terms of the potential to spread um, invasives, uh, as you say, through excrement, um, or uh, even um, overgrazing that might lead to erosion. So those are the things that are going to be very, very carefully monitored by our staff. And so where do we stand on this now as far as so the, the pilot project or the, the approval of the $150,000 has, has been made for the three-year program? Is it even at the stage of knowing kind of how many goats you would want or that would be needed or where you would even get them? Uh, we're at the very beginning, um, but the first phase, which is right now, is going to be very quick, and that phase is to actually lay, lay the, uh, out the rules for the study. So it's going to look, as I said, at uh, what the potential areas are that we want to take the goats and the, the or, and or the sheep, or if, if we are using sheep as well. But those are the, the, the sort of one the preferred animal that's used as a control um, for invasives in other parts of the world. Um, so f- number one, it's like where, uh, number two, um, when and for how long um, the, uh, the pilot's going to go on um, and uh, what we're going to test for. The pilots will probably take place uh, from 2020 to 20 into 2021. Um, and then in the third phase, which is the third year, it will be an assessment of the impact, uh, both positive and, as I said earlier, potentially if there's any negative impacts as well. But um, this is the kind of information that farmers need in order to decide if they are going to proceed with this instead of um, the use of pesticides. But that's our real goal and our real hope is that these um, goats and sheep will be absolutely fabulous at getting at the, um, the invasives. We don't have to use the noxious chemicals in that case the pesticides um, and uh, instead we have we have these wonderful animals out there uh, there must be some farmers already doing this uh, wouldn't there be well you know that's a good question and I haven't I mean other than the fact that I know of the um, uh, the Chilliwack um, the, the Chilliwack test study this where the city hired a herd of goats um, to try and get rid of Japanese knotweed. Um, I haven't heard or I haven't had any contact with farmers, um, but I have heard that there are some that currently do um, that use uh, use herd animals and in their you know agricultural operations. Um, so I'm sorry I can't say yes for sure and where that might be happening, but um, because I've seen it actual in action in other parts of the world, I know that it's very commonly used um, in order to by you know by by people, especially in, in the more rural areas, um, to uh, to tackle whatever those um, invasives are in, in in the particular country. So it you know here. Probably, yes, some farmers are using it. I'm sorry, I don't 
uh, have some specific farms in mind. All right, no problem. We'll be watching uh, to see what happens and how things go moving forward. Uh, Adrian Carr, thank you so much for your time. We'll leave it there, but thanks again. Oh, my pleasure. Well, we have been talking about this story since about January. That's when some strata corporations started contacting us saying, hey, something's going on with the insurance. So not only are we having difficulty getting it for this building, we live in a newish building. We've had no claims and our broker can't find anyone to insure us. And when he did eventually find a number of companies that could do that, the deductible jumped from about $5,000 to $250,000. That was just one scenario we were Made aware of back in January. And since then, there have been many other stories very similar and a lot of concern about how strata corporations are going to get insurance. So let's bring in Tony Giaventu, the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, good morning, Jill. It's a pleasure. We've been talking about this now for a few weeks. So where do we stand or where do you see things standing as far as condo uh, strata corporations and this issue with insurance right now? Well, you're right that we've been dealing with this for a bit, but it, it actually goes back a bit further, probably to about October of last year, where we started to see these um, horrendous increases. And the difficulty we have is most of these stratas on cycle renew uh, their policies every month differently. And so until we have a whole year of this under our belt, we don't really have a sense of what the landscape for um, insurance is going to look like. Uh, it's not changed. It's um, it's still we're still seeing significant um, costs. We're still seeing significant increases in deductible. But another thing that's popped his head up in the last probably month is that we're now seeing lost limits being imposed on policies. And so a good example of that is if your if your property is valued at. $35 million for replacement value for construction. Um, the insurance brokers in the industry may only be able to provide or they're only willing to provide maybe $25 million in, $25 million in coverage. Um, that doesn't affect the smaller claims, um, you know, a, a flood in the building that affects two units or three units or things like that. What it does affect is a total loss. And so in the event that 50% of the building or more was damaged and there was a total loss of the building, your coverage would only be 20 of the $35 million of its, of its replacement value. So that's, that's a pretty big concern right now. So what would happen in that scenario? In that scenario, the homeowners um, would be left short um, on the reconstruction value of their property. So it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a bizarre thing for British Columbia, and British Columbia really is a little bit of an unusual um, circumstance because we have so many strata corporations compared to other provinces. But the difficulty with British Columbia was we had such a rapid acceleration of property values that people are purchasing at a property value um, that's extremely high. Your property value doesn't match what your construction replacement value is. Uh, those are those are two different um, comparable values, and, and while they may be close in some circumstances, they they might be quite a bit off. So the difficulty you have is the construction value is lower than what the property purchase values were, and then you of course come full circle to now having a loss limit. That loss limit is now lower. So. If your property construction um, replacement was $35 million and your loss limit is $20 million, that's all you've got coverage for is $20 million in the event of a total loss. Now, the, the upside is that rarely happens. 
the unfortunate thing is, if it does happen, some community is going to be left with some very substantial losses. And so does that mean then, as it's required, the province requires buildings to have replacement insurance, but it doesn't require them to have replacements, replacement insurance that would actually replace the building? Actually, it does. The legislation says that Stratus must insure for full replacement value. Uh, now, it, it, and, and we have some quirky little conditions in, in under the insurance um, act and under insurance general insurance rules one of them is if you don't fully insure you can't cover for additional insurance um as strata council members or as a strata corporation you can't count you can't cover for additional under insurance in that way so really all of these people in this community really would be left at a loss they they would be taking a substantial loss in the event of a of a total loss so you know, I think if it may be such that we're now at a situation where if that's the best insurance that you can purchase, and if it is a reasonable cost to purchase that insurance, that may be the best option for certain um, strata communities. Not all stratas are being affected this way. You know, we're certainly seeing um, the sections um, and regions within the province and some zones where the the increases are nominal. They're not excessive. There's not a um, a massive increase in deductibles. But then we're looking at other targeted communities where the increases are overwhelming without really much explanation, Um, and especially if you compare them with other neighboring properties. So it's a, you know, it's an unusually complicated industry that everybody is trying to navigate because of the, the basically the limit of insurance companies that are willing to provide insurance. And what would happen then also, because one of the other issues that you've been talking about is personal insurance then. If you're in a strata and you buy your own, as you should, have your own homeowner's insurance. But if you cause the damage and the deductible, say you've damaged five units and the deductible is $100,000 and your personal coverage only provides, say, $60,000, a lot of people don't have forty grand sitting around. So what happens in that scenario? Well, the bleak side of that is is you have the very real risk of losing your home. That's that's the very downside of it. Uh, I everyone in the province who owns a strata unit needs to buy homeowner insurance. Um, it would be impossible to try and regulate it to make it le- a legislative requirement. Uh, when you, you you know you're dealing with a million units, who is going to regulate those? But the overriding protection for each owner is you need to look at your strata insurance deductibles because if you're responsible, you know you've left a bathtub overflow and you walked away, and this does happen, or you hung some clothing from a sprinkler head and it's flooded out half the building. This has also happened. Um, if you let this happen and your deductible is $250,000, and there's a half-million-dollar water claim in your building, you are going to be responsible for that $250,000. And the corporation is going to go after you. They're going to go to court They're going because the rest of the owners are in a position of saying, hey, why should we pay for this? This was your action, your responsibility that resulted in this. And so you as the owner, there's a real risk you're going to let get stuck with this $250,000. And if you can't pay it, you'll end up with a judgment against your unit and Basically, um, at some point, the corporation will want to go uh, for an order for payment. And so, you know, you're, you're going to be in the same situation of, of um, basically financial ruin. Hmm. So as you said, though, this isn't happening to everybody. There are, I know I'm also hearing from strata corporations that have said ours is going up 10%, 15% or going up by reasonable amounts. But for those mm-hmm. that are looking at this, what advice are you giving to them? 
Well, I think everyone um, in uh, not only just stratas, but rental buildings that are um, owned by single owners, um, co-ops, um, the entire housing industry is being affected. So this is not just targeted at stratas. Uh, but I think that everyone needs to step back and, t- and take a really close look at all of their risk management steps. Uh, if you're in an older building and you have not replaced your plumbing and you've had any kind of claims relating to water leaks, you're going to have a very difficult time obtaining insurance or it's going to be extremely expensive. If you've had a history of claims in your building in the last five years that you're that you can't um, uh, that, that there's no cycle that can break those, you're going to have a very difficult time. We have some of the buildings who, who, who we've been working with who've had extremely high increases or have um, not been able to get insurance. Some of them have, have had up to seven to eleven claims in the last in the last five years. Mm. Uh, that's a re- that's a really tough claims history. Think about that as a car driver. If you've had eleven accidents in the last five years, um, what your what your insurance would look like. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of implication. Uh, so, you know, the buildings need to really closely look at how they're planning for their risk management. What are they doing for maintenance, repairs? Uh, what are what are their bylaws say? What kind of activities are they permitting? Um, it, it, all the different actions of things that occur within your community. And there's nothing you can do to avoid negligence of owners and human error. Those things are going to happen, but the things you can control that you can avoid will will make a difference in your insurance and in your renewals. And that's one of the things to pay, pay close attention to. All right. Good advice. And I know a lot of people are paying close attention to this. Tony, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us again today. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. We want to shift gears a little bit and take a look at what has been done in the past few years in B.C. to deal with the ongoing crisis that is opioid overdoses. We have a standalone ministry that deals with opioids and addiction in this province, but is it making a difference? Well, Andrew McLeod is the Thais Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria, also the author of All Together Healthy, and he has written about this at thetai.ca. He joins us on the line now. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for your interest. Uh, it is something that uh, it was getting so much attention and then uh, the numbers, well, the numbers keep coming in as far as overdose, overdose deaths and people who are surviving. But uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of movement on as far as as far as really making a big change. So what did you find when you looked into this? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I I, I do wonder, you know, how do we measure success on it? And, and I think sort of the biggest, bluntest way to measure success is the number of overdoses and the number of deaths. Um, going back to 2016, 2017, uh, ahead of the last provincial election, the numbers were around 900 deaths a year in the province. Uh, and you'll remember that uh, John Horgan campaigned on bringing that down. Uh, the way they were going to do that was with this new ministry that was going to be focused on it. Uh, and in the time since then, uh, the number of deaths went up for a couple more years. I think we peaked at about uh, almost 1,600 uh, two years ago. And then, then this year was the first year that they have come down, uh, and they're back down to 900 and something, which is exactly where they were uh, in 2016. So, so we haven't uh, come down from, from where they were then, uh, but we've had sort of a spike and, and a return back to that. And then, and then on top of that, uh, the number of people actually overdosing uh, has continued to go up. Uh, it's just that, that through Narcan and, and uh, safe consumption sites and prevention services, uh, we've done a better job of, of keeping people alive. 
Um, so the, the main criticism of the ministry and the government's response is, is they're not getting at sort of, you know, the roots of addiction uh, and, and for a lot of people, you know, trauma is behind that. And so, so it's a whole suite of things that would go into uh, making a, a, a better, um, uh, you know, approach to that. And your article talks about the ministry, which is the standalone ministry for mental health and addictions, setting that up in 2017. So what has it done or has it shown to be, like you said, it's very difficult to measure success on this file, but is the ministry, I suppose, doing what it's supposed to do? Um, it depends who you ask. Um, so, so there are lots of critics out there. Uh, the article starts with quoting Perry Kendall, who is... Uh, He's an interim uh, director at the BC Substance Use Centre, and he was the uh, provincial health officer in 2016 when when the crisis started. Uh, and his his general criticism was, you know, when you have a separate ministry, uh, it has a small budget, and the money for dealing with the crisis is in another ministry. Most of it's in the health ministry. Um, and there were lots of uh, you know critics out in the community who, who said things like, I mean, one of them said. You know, it's, it's worst case scenario is the new ministry gives the appearance of a response, but not an actual response. Um, but yes, the government and they can list off you know all the things they've done. Right? They've spent, uh, I think it's 600 million over five years. They've got planned to spend on mental health and addictions. Uh, they're expanding the foundry systems. They're expanding, uh, you know, safe consumption and prevention services. Uh, they're doing more with. Uh, opioid agonist therapies and and uh, moving people into treatment um, you know so they can tell you all the inputs um, and, and best case scenario uh, the the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions and the minister responsible uh, can coordinate with health uh, and then with also with other ministries that have um, you know some interest in the area so children and families uh, poverty reduction uh, housing, you know, all those things are closely related as well. So, so best case scenario, there's a coordinating role to play. Um, and I do think, yeah, that question of how do you measure success is a tough one, right? You know, do you measure it by how many dollars went in? You know, what are the inputs? Or do you measure it on the outcomes? Uh, and in the short term, it would seem, you know, the main outcome that we can measure, which is the overdoses and the deaths from overdoses, uh, it's been tough to get that to move. Um, now, I would say these are the kinds of problems that are generational uh, and so so you know what are our expectations is two and a half years a, a lot of time for this or you know is it going to take four or ten or thirty uh, and you know I, best best case scenario the kinds of things they are doing uh, will have a, a big impact you know 10 15 20 years down the road uh, it's interesting when you say that, too, on measuring it. And I think one of the concerns also is if we're just looking at the numbers and people might think, well, we're on the right path then. If the number of overdose deaths has declined, that's a good thing. But what we fail to look at, I think, sometimes is that if we're just keeping people alive, we're bringing people back from overdose after overdose. In many cases, we're talking about people who suffer brain damage. We're talking about people who, yes, they're brought back and they're still alive, but it's not as though they're brought back and everything's great. They're brought back and they still have all of these issues that were there before they overdosed. All the issues and, and more so. Uh, yeah, Perry Kendall in particular, when they were releasing the latest numbers, made that point. He went through sort of a graphic description of what happens when someone overdoses, and it includes you know, the respiratory system uh, shutting down and the, and, the, and the heart shutting down uh, briefly so, so the, there is you know, reduced oxygen to the brain for a period of time uh, until the person is, is brought back. 
and and yes, we we know that has lasting effects. So so if we're having you know similar numbers of overdoses but fewer deaths, there are more people uh, who are in that situation. Um, so yeah, no, it, it's it's got a big long term impact. Uh, it's interesting. I, I knew we were going to be having this conversation today. Yesterday, I happened to be downtown. I was uh, doing an update on the COVID-19 uh, cases in BC. And while I was outside the government offices at Canada Place, a man came up to me and said, hey, I remember you. You interviewed me. And I didn't place him right at that moment. But uh, it turns out he was one of the five people who's taking part in the opioid vending machine uh, mm. that's taking place in Vancouver. And I did in January, I think it was, uh, mid-January, when I was there covering it with uh, Dr. Mark Tyndall. And he was one of the participants that agreed to talk to the media. And then when I placed it, I thought, oh, well, you know, how's it going? And he said, it's absolutely great. Uh, here I am. And he looked great. He looked healthy. He was you know, going about his day. And he said, it's, it's really saved me. It's been the one thing that's made a huge difference in my life. And, and look at me. And I thought, isn't that interesting that, that it's just a pilot project at this part? It's the first of its kind in Canada. But does that, do you think, point at how we need to change how we're dealing with people who have addiction? Yeah, and, and certainly with, with the response to it, I, I mean, the advocates, are all talking about safe supply, right? Like the the problem, you know, we we have a, a big addiction issue, and and it wouldn't be such a big problem except that we also have a drug supply that's toxic. Uh, you know, there, there's fentanyl and other stuff in in the drugs that people are buying on the street uh, that can kill them. Um, if you you know guarantee that the supply is safe, you know, either have it you know regulated in some way by the government um, or provided by the government. Um, then, then you'll have you know fewer overdoses and, and fewer problems, especially those long-term problems that we were talking about before with people uh, having brain damage from from uh, from overdoses. Um, so yeah, the, the the vending machine is is a fairly small one. The government would argue that all the things they're doing with um, you know methadone and suboxone are the same. You know that's essentially safe supply. Uh, I don't think people advocates in the community accept that. You know if, if people are using. Uh, particular drugs, um, you know, we should be doing what we can to to get the toxins, uh, the toxic supply uh, out out of that. Um, uh, Interestingly, you mentioned COVID-19 too. I mean, one of the people I talked to made the point that, you know, we talk about the opioid overdose crisis being a public health emergency, and you look at what the response has been like, and then compare that to what the response has been like to to COVID-19. You know, it's been a much quicker mobilization uh, you know, the press conferences with the provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, and with the health minister, Adrian Dix, every day. Um, you know, there seems to be a much more concerted uh, all-hands-on-deck kind of response where, where the opioid, opioid crisis seems to be sort of a slower uh, ongoing shipwreck. Well, and it's still that certainly I would think points to the fact whether people admit it or not, they tend to blame drug users and think that it's their fault. Yeah, I think that's still out there. I don't think anybody who is close to it, certainly people in the health world, don't look at that it that way. Uh, I don't think even the liberal opposition looks at it that way. I think you know politically we're at a point in this province where a lot of people realize that you know people's reasons for using uh, drugs uh, tend to be you know deep. I mean, not obviously not everyone agrees with this, but 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 largely, I think you know certainly the decision makers would accept that. Uh, you know, drug use is closely related to mental health, and it's all closely related to uh, trauma and what people have been through in their lives. Um, and, and so, yes, there's a, uh, some kind of a choice, but it's a choice that people make, you know, af- after going through all kinds of things that, uh, uh, that make it less of a choice. I'm, I'm not wording that very well, but, 
you know, I, I, I think most people accept that it's, it's a health issue, uh, not a criminal issue at this point, in, at least in this province. So where do you see it going from here? And the piece is really comprehensive, looking at, at a lot of the major players as far as health care and uh, the advocates for, as you mentioned, the safer supply. Where do we go uh, from this point, do you think? Yeah, there, there's discussion happening. I mean, the, the province's response on safe supply, as, as it is on decriminalization, is that those are really federal issues. You know, it's up to the, the federal government uh, to decide what should be uh, banned and what shouldn't be um, there, there is a, a, a new pilot program uh, coming with with sort of uh, safe supply stuff happening, and, and I believe what happens is is you can try the pilot programs, and if they're shown to work, uh, then they can be scaled up, and you know in the same way that the uh, safe consumption sites were, uh, or the uh, injectable uh, opioid agonist therapy uh, was. So, so, so I think there's more stuff happening that way. Um, I do think the government has put in a fair bit of money into to mental health and, and treatment, like the like the sort of the early stages stuff, you know, the foundry centers and that sort of thing. Uh, and I do think it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't expect to see a quick turnaround from, but that you might see a, a difference from, you know, ten years down the road. Um, so I, I do think you know this 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 is a problem that wasn't you know three weeks in the making. It's not going to be solved that fast. Like it is, it is sort of a big ongoing thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's something that they will continue to manage and continue to try different things. Uh, certainly the, the provincial government has a long list of the things that are underway. Um, and, you know, one hopes that some of them will be effective and, and that that will be enough research to know which ones are effective and, and that they'll get scaled up so that they're, they're widely available. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Andrew, thanks so much for your time this morning and for talking about the piece. Yeah, no, thank you again for having me on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to talk about it.